These are terrible economic times for so many in the city. People can't find work, and those who still go to work have had their wages cut. In the day-to-day struggle to survive, they've forgotten the devastation and the optimism that followed the end of a civil war. All around them, the city is expanding. Brand new homes line brand new streets. Someone is making money in this town, but you either have to have money or know somebody to get ahead. And then there are the trolleys, the deadly trolleys. It's the gilded age on the streets of Philadelphia, a city that's on the move, but not everyone is along for the ride. This is Found in Philadelphia, a podcast dedicated to telling the stories of Philadelphia's past so that we can better understand the present because our history matters. I'm your host, Lori Almond. With each episode, I hope that you'll learn something new, see things a little differently, and be inspired to go discover some of this history for yourself right here in the city of brotherly love. We're finally back with another episode in the series about the history of Philadelphia streets. This is the ninth episode in the series, and it's about Philly streets during the Gilded Age, which is roughly the period from the 1870s to about 1900, depending on which historian you ask. There's a lot going on during this time, so this episode sets the stage for the Gilded Age in Philadelphia and focuses on the physical changes to the streets. Get ready, because there's going to be red-hot, page-turning engineering reports. And even better, there are historic engineering reports about pavement. And if you're enjoying this series about Philly streets through history, you can support the podcast by leaving a review and telling a friend to check it out. If you're curious about what's going on with the podcast in between episodes, you can sign up for the podcast newsletter at our website, foundinphiladelphia.com. In this episode, we're going to look at Philly streets in the decades following the Civil War. From 1865 to 1900, there was incredible political and economic turmoil in the United States. Here's a really quick overview of the times. After the war, there was a brief period of progressive politics known as Reconstruction, which lasted from 1865 to about 1873 or so. Reconstruction was the radical Republican project of integrating African Americans as full citizens of the United States. Just after the war, we passed landmark civil rights legislation at both the federal and state levels. In Pennsylvania and throughout the country, it was black trailblazers who were leading these political changes. They were acting behind the scenes, writing legislation, like Philly's Octavius Caddo, or they were demanding that their rights be upheld in the streets, like Caddo's contemporary, Carolyn LeCount. And Black leaders were also being elected to serve in federal and state governments throughout the South, where they promoted the region's first public education systems. But the era of Reconstruction was short-lived. By the 1870s, it was faltering. The years that followed have been called the Gilded Age. This was a time of grinding economic depressions, labor unrest, racial violence, and deep, widespread poverty for much of the country. 
But it was also an era of expansion and industrial innovation, with wealth concentrated in the few who profited from unregulated business monopolies and political corruption. How did things go so wrong? Historians point to many reasons why Reconstruction came to an end. But I want to focus on the crippling economic depression of the 1870s, which shifted people's priorities. And many historians use this economic downturn to mark the end of Reconstruction and the beginning of the Gilded Age. It began with the financial panic of 1873, a stock market crash in Europe, destabilized investment in the booming railroad industry in the U.S. This was a time when railroads were rapidly expanding westward through Indian country, mainly with the work of immigrant labor, including Chinese workers. The chaos in the European market caused a crash of railroad stock in the U.S. that brought down the powerful bank of J. Cook & Company, which was deeply invested in railroads. At the time, everyone thought Cook's bank was, wait for it, too big and solid to fail. Cook was a Philadelphia-born banker who'd helped the North win the Civil War by financing over a billion dollars worth of war bonds. The crash of such a powerhouse of a bank sent shockwaves through the nation. And the rest of the U.S. banking system started to fall apart, followed by the collapse of about half of the railroad companies in the country. The economic downturn blunted popular support for the sitting president and Civil War hero, Ulysses S. Grant. Many people were also angry about the shameless corruption within the Grant administration and his Republican Party. And both the Depression and the political scandals contributed to the shift in national politics and the rising power of Southern Democrats. Ultimately, this set the stage for the contested presidential election of 1876, which was resolved by giving Republican Rutherford B. Hayes the White House. Hayes then pulled the remaining federal troops out of the South, giving Democrats uncontested control there. This realignment brought an end to the progress that had been made in civil rights. The North now turned a blind eye to the systemic and often violent repression of Black people in the United States. The average worker in places like Philadelphia was consumed by day-to-day -day survival. The Panic of 1873 was devastating for workers at a time when there was no safety net. The failures of banks and railroads eventually brought on a deep and lasting economic depression, with Pennsylvania among the hardest hit. An estimated 25 to 30% of workers lost their jobs. Many who still had jobs were asked to work reduced hours or had their wages cut. Those who continued to work found they were earning less while prices were rising. Pennsylvania workers' real wages were estimated to have fallen by more than 50% between 1870 and 1876. Times were so bad that in 1877, over 2,000 people in Philadelphia willingly committed themselves to jail in order to have a meal and a place to sleep. And it took a long time for people to recover. The U.S. economy went through another recession in the mid-1880s. And then just as things seemed to be getting better, the economy took another nosedive in the 1890s. Perhaps the worst year was 1895, when many industries basically stopped production. 
It's estimated that the nation was hit again with 20% unemployment. These waves of economic disasters kept hitting the working class, while the wealthy few just seemed to get wealthier and more extravagant. Because the United States and its industries continued to grow and expand despite the downturns. Government placed few regulations on business. In fact, there was a great deal of corruption that was profitable for both corporations and politicians. And Philly was no exception. The city went through astonishing physical growth during this turbulent period. And much of that infrastructure was built through corrupt political contracts. There was so much construction that these decades of the Gilded Age are really important for how our city streets look today. So let's take a look at who lived in the streets of Philadelphia during the Gilded Age. The decades following the Civil War saw Philadelphia's population growing at a steady rate. In 1870, city residents numbered nearly 700,000. And over the next 40 years, the population would more than double, standing at 1.6 million in 1910. But despite this growth, Philadelphia would drop from being the second most populous city in the United States after New York to being the third most populous by 1910, being surpassed by that Midwestern upstart, Chicago. The city's population increase came in part from the movement of rural workers from across the country who came to the city looking for work during these difficult economic times. Philadelphia was a major manufacturing center in this period, attracting workers to big businesses like textile factories, shipyards, oil refineries, and coal yards, as well as the many smaller shops making everything from pharmaceuticals to felted hats. A great number of these migrants were formerly enslaved people from the South in search of a better life in the North. The city's Black population grew from 22,000 in 1860 to 32,000 in 1880 and 66,000 by 1900, always remaining about 4% of the growing population. Many of these Black migrants from the South moved into the city's Seventh Ward, a vibrant Black neighborhood running from Spruce to South Streets between 7th and 25th Streets. These people paved the way for the great migration of Black Southerners that would come later. Another group moving to Philly in this period were Chinese migrants. These workers had been desperately needed to do the grueling manual labor required to build the Transcontinental Railroad. But many of these men left the harsh conditions in the West to start new lives in the East. Philly's Chinese-born population grew from just 13 men in 1870 to nearly 1,200 by 1900. They were a small part of the overall population, but many settled in the blocks surrounding 9th and Race Streets, leaving a lasting legacy in the neighborhood we now call Chinatown. Both Black and Chinese migrants clustered in their separate neighborhoods out of necessity because they weren't welcome in other parts of the city, but they were also drawn to live near their own community and cultural centers. While internal migration was important, Philadelphia's population growth after the Civil War was mainly fueled by overseas immigration. Irish immigrants continued to come, and they remained the most numerous foreign-born residents of the city. The next largest immigrant group was from Germany. German immigrants from this period were often low-skilled workers, displaced by political and industrial changes at home. Increasingly towards the turn of the century, 
Catholic and Jewish immigrants were coming from Russia and Southern and Eastern Europe, especially from Italy and Poland. They were also coming from Latin America and the Caribbean, drawn to Philly cigar-making shops and locomotive works. As the population was doubling in these years, foreign-born residents remained a steady 25% of the city. Just to put that into perspective, Philly's current foreign-born population is 15%, which is slightly higher than the national average. And what did this growing city look like at this point? Well, the Gilded Age was the Golden Age for the row home. Between 1870 and 1890, the city exploded with dense row house-style developments in neighborhoods beyond the center of the city. For those who don't know, a row home or row house is a two to four story house that shares one or both of its sidewalls with the buildings next door. In these years, Philly began to fill out its urban grid of streets, lining them with row homes. These houses were typically built in groups, each with their own unique character. And it was this building boom from 150 years ago that made Philadelphia the city of row homes that it is today. The row house still defines the overall character for so many of our neighborhoods. And this expansion was happening everywhere beyond the historic core of Center City. West Philadelphia was transformed into a grid of homes from around Woodland Cemetery in the south to the zoo in the north, while railroads and heavy industry lined the Schuylkill River. North of Center City, just after the war, Girard College stood on the outskirts of urban development. But by the 1890s, the college was surrounded by a sea of row houses that pushed up against the railroad tracks that ran parallel to Glenwood and Tioga Streets. And to the south of the city center, dense blocks of row houses, which had petered out around South Street and Washington Avenue during the war, now covered newly built streets all the way down to Snyder. Older settlements were also growing and changing. Maniunk was now a built-up industrial center with housing perched all the way up the hill to Ridge Avenue. Germantown had transformed from a semi-rural village to a small town with suburban-style summer getaways for the wealthy that spread out across Chestnut Hill. And in the Northeast, the textile industry fueled a building boom for worker housing in Frankfurt. Philly's dense urban grid of row homes nearly doubled in the Gilded Age, right along with the city's population. The city must have felt like one huge construction site. A large number of these new row houses were being built by building associations. Though these associations had started before the war, they became even more popular after the war was over. In 1876, there were reportedly 450 building associations with over 6,000 members who held a third of all mortgages in the city. Building associations helped to grow the city at a rate of around 3,000 new dwellings a year. Now, these were mostly small, two-story houses, but that's a staggering number of new homes. In 2022, Philly built only 600 or so single-family homes. So how did these building associations work? In the 19th century, building associations were like a mutual aid society that acted as a building and loan. These attracted men from the class of skilled workers called journeymen, who had some money to invest, but not a lot. These men would buy shares in the building association. 
they could then borrow against these shares to bid for mortgages on individual properties. The association allowed the better off in the working class to borrow money to buy property, something that they'd been excluded from doing before. But the majority of the working class still rented their homes. Only 22% of houses were owner-occupied. Compare that to today when over 50% of Philly residents own their homes. But building associations did boost the building trades in Philly, providing an important source of employment during rough economic times. In 1870, it was estimated that at least 20,000 Philly residents worked in construction, which was about 3% of the total population. On top of all of this housing, two key Philadelphia landmarks were also built after the Civil War. The first is our extensive Fairmount Park. The park had begun in the years before the war, but was then just the area between Fairmount, where the art museum now stands, to just beyond Girard Avenue. The 2,000-acre park that we now enjoy was created in the post-Civil War years to protect the city's water supply. And the area of the park around the Please Touch Museum was home to the 1876 Centennial Exhibition, which was a blockbuster international event that you can learn more about in episode seven of the podcast. The second major landmark built after the Civil War is our City Hall. This was a major civic construction project on one of Philly's original five public squares called Center Square and it almost became a coal yard for the powerful Pennsylvania Railroad Company. But instead, it was chosen as the location for our immense city hall. The building was plagued by corrupt city contracts that were doled out in return for political support. And construction dragged on for 30 years, from 1871 to 1901. In many ways, City Hall is a testament to the dirty politics and the extravagances of the Gilded Age. But there's also a kind of shining optimism about it. As one contemporary noted, at City Hall, they were building nothing less than, quote, the Philadelphia of the future. And what about the streets of Philadelphia during all of this expansion? Well, it turns out they were thinking about the future of Philly streets too. We have to remember that a lot of this building was happening on a grid of completely new streets. Most of these streets had only ever existed as dotted lines on city maps. The city had to build these new streets and sidewalks just as quickly as the houses were going up. And we can get a fairly good understanding of the state of these streets from a study that was commissioned by the city in 1884. They asked three engineers to examine the existing conditions of Philly streets then identify problems with the paving, and finally recommend how the city should pave the streets moving forward. And we're going to dig into the nitty-gritty of this report right now. One striking finding was that over 40% of city streets were reported to be unpaved in 1884. And of the 60% of streets that were paved, the vast majority were paved with irregular cobblestones laid in a red clay gravel. This meant that Philly streets had been paved with the same system of cobblestone paving for 200 years. But Philly streets in the Gilded Age were now covered with rails for the city's network of horse-drawn streetcars. And it was important to take this into consideration moving forward. The engineers noted the narrowness of Philly streets, averaging about 50 to 60 feet between houses, 
leaving room for a roadway that was only about 25 feet wide. And about half of these narrow paved streets also had streetcar rails. So to recap, in 1884, 40% of Philly streets were unpaved, 30% of the streets were paved with cobblestones, and the remaining 30% of streets were paved with cobblestones and had some kind of street railway. There was clearly a lot of work to do. By the 1880s, the city had been experimenting with some new paving systems, and the engineers who conducted this study for the city took a look at these. About 7% of city streets were paved with regularly cut granite block pavers, sometimes called Belgian block. But it was hard for the engineers to evaluate the granite block pavements because they were so frequently torn up for underground pipes, and they were never properly reset. But Belgian block, when properly laid, looked promising. The city was also experimenting with asphalt pavements, laid down in sheets or in blocks. These asphalt pavements were being tested outside of the city center, especially in areas like Germantown and Chestnut Hill. Asphalt had the advantage of being relatively cheap and quiet, but mostly it was cheap. Unfortunately, it didn't hold up very well in heavy traffic. The engineers briefly discussed a woodblock pavement system, which consisted of wood blocks laid over a foundation of Portland cement. Woodblock pavements were nice because they were quiet, but they found that this system was about three times the cost of other paving materials, and the woodblocks, surprise, surprise, weren't very durable. Though a few woodblock alleys remain in Philly around 13th and Chancellor Streets. The engineers were asked to recommend the best pavement system for Philadelphia based on these metrics. Durability, economy, smoothness, cleanliness, and freedom from noise. Remember that the engineers were thinking about streets where horse-drawn vehicles were the main form of transportation. So they needed to think about pavements that gave good grip for the horse's hooves in all kinds of weather. The pavement also needed to be easy to clean to get rid of all that horse manure. And busy streets with lots of horse-drawn vehicles were really noisy. Metal horseshoes struck the pavement at every step. The noise was loud enough to penetrate into buildings. And the engineers were clearly thinking about the need for quieter pavements in residential areas and around hospitals and public buildings. Now, I know you're on the edge of your seat wondering, what did they decide in the end? Well, the engineers recommended that most streets be paved with granite Belgian blocks. Belgian blocks were best on narrow streets, on streets with rails, on steeper streets, and on streets with heavy wagon traffic. But they preferred the use of quieter asphalt pavement near public buildings and in strictly residential areas where there were no rail lines the engineers' recommendations would become important for Philly streets. The Pennsylvania state government passed the General Incorporation Law of 1889 that allowed competition in Philly's transit market. This gave the city council leverage to demand that the streetcar companies finally uphold their commitments to repave city streets. They could no longer get away with ignoring the law. City streets improved dramatically in just a few years, with over 250 miles of city streets paved. Many of the granite block pavements from this era remain underneath our streets today. The investment in new pavement was happening in tandem with the arrival of a new technology on city streets. Electricity had arrived and it was literally hanging over Philly streets. Beginning in 1892, 
Improved pavement stretched farther and farther out from center city, accompanied by rows of electric poles and swoops of overhead wires, announcing the imminent arrival of electric trolleys. This work was funded by growing public transit monopolies, who also had close ties to real estate and amusement park development in outlying areas of the city. They were building new places to live and play, and the electric trolleys were connecting these suburban pleasures to the center of the city and raising market values. Electric street railways were one of the few growth industries in the United States during the economic depression of the 1890s. Electric trolleys took over so quickly that by 1897, horse-drawn streetcars were gone from Philly streets. By 1900, Philadelphia had 53 electric trolley lines, which covered 436 miles and carried 224 million riders every year. Eventually in 1902, all of the individually chartered streetcar rail lines would be incorporated in true Gilded Age style into the privately owned Philadelphia Rapid Transit Company. But the growth of the electric trolley network was not universally popular. The new electric trolleys were seen by some as a major improvement in a rapidly expanding city. But others saw the electric trolleys as a dangerous threat on the streets of Philadelphia. It all depended on your perspective, where you lived, and your income. So who was pro-electric trolley? It was the middle-class suburban residents who eagerly awaited the arrival of the electric trolleys, which would connect them to the rest of the city. The trolley system created what historian John Hepp has called a bourgeois corridor, through which the middle class experienced the city. They could safely shuttle back and forth from one middle class space to another without having to mix with the rest of the residents of the city because the poorer classes were kept from regularly using trolleys by the high fares. So the trolley cars were almost exclusively filled by the middle class and middle-class standards of behavior were expected to be maintained there. This allowed middle-class women a new freedom. The trolley car was a relatively safe, exclusive space that allowed them to travel throughout the city on their own without a male escort. The electric trolleys made it possible for the middle-class to live farther out from center city in greener residential areas surrounded by neighbors of the same economic level. The trolley connected them to the commercial areas of the city where the men worked in offices and the women shopped at the new department stores. Trolleys took them to the specially built amusement parks in the evenings and on weekends. So the schedule for trolleys and trains set the tempo of middle-class life. Their daily lives were planned around these schedules. And as the schedules became more complex, people had to know the time more precisely than ever before. Schedules that had once noted arrival and departure times on the hour, half past, or quarter two, now gave times to the minute, like 10.49 a.m. or 11.53 p.m. It wasn't a coincidence that time was standardized across the United States in 1883 as transit schedules grew more and more exact. But what about Philly residents who lived and worked in the dense city streets? those who couldn't afford to ride the trolleys every day and had to walk where they needed to go. Well, they were up in arms about the new electric trolleys. In fact, the newspapers routinely referred to them as the, quote, deadly trolleys. 
What was going on here? Were the trolleys really a danger or was this just sensational journalism? I mean, we still ride trolleys every day here in Philly. And a 2013 report found that the trolley system averaged less than 50 crashes a year, with fatalities being extremely rare. Kids take trolleys to school. We decorate them for the holidays. They're adorable. But trolleys were different back then, and there were valid safety concerns. One of the main fears was the overhead electrical wires that were required to run the trolleys. The wires really weren't a problem out in the suburbs, but those wires were a problem downtown. In this era, Philly's dense city streets were already clogged with hanging wires. Overhead, there were telegraph and telephone wires. There were wires for these extremely bright electric arc streetlights. One reporter counted 130 wires running diagonally across the intersection of 15th and Market Street, just west of City Hall. But many other streets were zigzagged with existing wires as well. And now there would be uninsulated, high-voltage trolley wires added to the mix. Again, the trolley's use of uninsulated wires was not really a problem out in the countryside where there weren't any other wires. If a trolley wire tore apart and fell down out there, the current would be broken and the downed wire would be dead. But in the city, there were very real fears about existing electrical wires coming into contact with the new trolley wires, which carried 500 volts of electricity. This is considered high voltage, capable of causing burns and internal injury. Electricity was new, and the danger from live wires falling from above, charged with some deadly, invisible force, was scary. One opinion piece called them, quote, death-carrying wires. And these fears were borne out by subsequent events. Wires came down and crossed with other wires at 8th and Lombard Streets, showering sparks in the air. Broken and crossed wires caused house fires. In the winter of 1894, two horses were killed by a fallen wire at Ridge and Diamond Streets. A telephone wire had broken, crossed a trolley wire, and fallen to the street. There, the live wire was covered with snow. Unknowingly, the horses were driven right over the live wire and were electrocuted. The men who tried to free the horses from the wires were blown backward by the force of the high voltage. Police and firemen added rubber gloves to their everyday gear to deal with the situation. In place of overhead wires, the public discussed running the electrical wires underground, and some discussed the potential for trolleys to run on battery power instead. But the real danger came from the trolley cars themselves. Electric trolleys were faster, heavier, and quieter than the horse-drawn streetcars, and this proved to be a deadly mix. The old horse-drawn streetcars had traveled at maximum speeds of about four miles per hour, while the new electric trolleys could run at speeds of 12 miles per hour, especially in the less congested streets out in the suburbs. But trolleys often slowed to only six miles per hour in busy parts of the city. But these increased speeds were enough to shape the streets. To accommodate the faster-moving trolleys, intersections were built with wider, curved corners. Prior to that, the curbs had a much tighter turning radius. The electric trolleys were also heavier than the old horse-drawn streetcars, and they carried more people. So when they struck, they did much more damage. 
and they were much quieter too. Remember how noisy horse-drawn vehicles were? Well, one upside of that was that people could hear them coming. But electric trolleys made much less noise. In almost all of the collisions, people said that they just didn't hear the trolley coming. At each intersection, the trolley operator, called a motorman, was supposed to set up a gong to warn pedestrians. But in between intersections, there was nothing. People were used to the old streetcars, which made constant noise when they were on the move. The horses wore bells, and there was the constant clip-clopping, which warned of their approach. This all made trolley collisions more dangerous. As soon as the first electric trolley line went into service along Bainbridge and Catherine Streets, the fatalities began. The earliest victims were the young and the old, children aged four and nine, and adults aged 75 and 80. There was a push to equip the electric trolleys with safety fenders to make collisions less gruesome. But deaths and injuries from streetcars nearly doubled after electrification. This was the Gilded Age in Philadelphia, a city that was growing and expanding during stormy political and economic weather. It was the best of times for some, and it was the worst of times for many more. We've talked a lot about the physical changes to Philly streets, but what about the people who met on these streets? What happened when the middle class got off the trolley in these diverse neighborhoods outside of their safe spaces? What happened when they ran up against the rest of the people who had to walk and many who had to work in the street? Well, we'll talk about that in the next episode. Thank you for listening to the Found in Philadelphia podcast. If you're enjoying this series about the history of Philly streets, please drop me a review and share the podcast with a friend. And please check out the podcast website at foundinphiladelphia.com to learn more, see some period images, and find a list of my sources. This podcast was researched, written, hosted, and recorded by me, Lori Ament. Cyril Tayendi is the amazing audio engineer who manages to make everything sound good and still finds time to lead the Community Recording Collective at Drexel University.